We're um, we're in the in the middle of a series on kings, First uh, and Second Kings, and to to lay all my cards on the table. Um, before this series, we did a series on the Ten Commandments. I called the Ten Principles. And it was kind of startling when you when you go through that series and recognize just how uh, how much our culture is moving away from the the way that God says this is what the context that we require for flourishing. And I'm personally a, a little bit pessimistic about where we're headed. Um, I, I, things could be turned around at any moment, and I believe that and I trust that. But it seems to me like it seems to me as though our culture is moving in a bad direction. One that's increasingly hostile and anti-Christic. Um, and so, this series is really about creating a culture of resistance. I, I think that one of like my jobs, or maybe the biggest job be, beyond just sharing the gospel, is, is preparing us, fortifying us for what it looks like to live in a hostile culture, to have a, a counterculture, a culture of resistance that's strong, that's faithful, that can weather the storm. And so you saw last week or two weeks ago we did Obadiah and Elijah. Like, what's, what does it look like to have roles? What, 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 how do we how do we operate in an anti-Christic culture? Today we're going to be looking um, at uh, the the big things that God sometimes does. And so uh, join me as we look at First Kings eighteen. Um, so Obadiah, we saw him a couple weeks ago. Uh, Obadiah went to meet Ahab, that's the king of Israel, and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah, uh, the prophet. When he saw Elijah, he said to them, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah is like, Nope, I have not made trouble for Israel. He replied, But you and your father's family have. You've abandoned Yahweh's commands and followed the Baals or Baals. That's, uh, that's the, the Semitic word or, uh, for Lord or Master. So there's Yahweh, who's the Adonai Lord, and then there's the Baals or the Baals. They're at Master. So who's the real Master here? And so Elijah tells Ahab, Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. Um, what's going on? Why are there all these prophets? Who are they prophets to? Well, the first thing to note is Mount Carmel. I got a picture here of Mount Carmel. Um, Carmel is the, the Hebrew for a garden of God. Uh, Carm, Carmi is garden and El is God, garden of God. The question though is which God is this garden belong to? Um, on the left, you can see a map of Israel. Uh, the, it's Israel, and then to the, the northwest is Phoenicia. And if you look at the bottom left of the map, I don't know if you can make it out, but in red letters, it says Mount Carmel. And then there's that dotted line that, that shows Israel's land. And just across the Kishon River from Mount Carmel is, is Phoenicia. That's uh, Tyre and Sidon. You might remember Jesus talking about Tyre and Sidon in the New Testament. Why is this important? Well, it's important because Phoenicia is the home of Jezebel, Ahab's wife. Uh, this is where she grew up, where she's from. And it's where she learned to worship. And so uh, Elijah's taking us and taking the people of Israel to the, like, the dividing line between Israel, that's supposed to be Yahweh's territory, and uh, Phoenicia, which is supposed to be Baal and Asherah's territory. Who are Baal and Asherah? Um, 
we're not exactly sure which of the Baals uh, Elijah's fighting with. It, uh, we think it might be a guy named Melkart. He got a picture of him up here. Uh, Melkart's on the right. He was um, the, the god of the underworld. And he uh, had a, a, a mistress. Her name was Asherah. She was the goddess of fertility. She's on the left. Uh, both of those artifacts are, are from roughly the period what we're talking about, 900 BC-ish, somewhere in there. Um, and they're both available. You can uh, view them at uh, the, the museum in Tel Aviv in Israel. They're, they're still there. It's pretty cool. So the, the thing that's going on then is there's these two lovers, you know, god of the underworld, fertility goddess. They're on one side. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, is on the other side. And Elijah's taking us to a, what's essentially, it's, it's a big duel. Um, for those of you who love Westerns, I know I do. I've got a shot here of a duel. Apparently, uh, these didn't actually happen that often uh, in the real world, but they did. They did happen. And, you know, you got the, the one guy who's like, you cheated the cards. The other guy's like, no, I didn't. And they're like, all right, well, let's fight it out. And that's what Elijah believes God has called him to do, to have a big showdown, a big fight between the gods of Jezebel and Ahab, the king and queen of Israel, and the god of ancestral faith. And the thing we should take from that is that there, it doesn't happen very often. You, you read the Bible, you're not going to see a whole bunch of stories like this. Um, but it does happen on occasion. When things get really, really bad, this is the first thing I know she is, when things get really, really bad, sometimes God shows up, does a showdown, a big, powerful display of who God is and what God is like. Now that's encouraging on the one hand, but it's also discouraging on the other, because if God's pushed to the point where it's showdown time, that means things have gotten Horrible! At the same time, it's encouraging because it's like, well, God can do this, and God's not afraid to do it, and God will win. And if it is the the case that we are in the midst of a culture that is increasingly rejecting um, faith and the truth, we might wonder, what would it look like to get so bad in this culture, in this place, that God does something like that? And that's a question that... We can ask, what would it look like in our culture for things to get so bad that God would step in in a very powerful way? One, thing's, one of the things that we confess here at, at Coast is that the end of days is going to be when things get to that place. It gets so bad that you know the worldwide culture gets so corrupt and so antichristic that God has to come in and just take care of business. And I hope that that's not on the, in the cards for us. I really do. Uh, the last, last thing I want is to, to see that. But even if we're just in a moment where we're kind of flirting with that, even if we're in a moment where we're just kind of trending in that direction, we still have to know how to operate. So let's go, uh, let's go on in the text. So, um, Ahab sends word through all Israel, gets all, all these, the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. Elijah goes down to the people and says, how long will you dither between two positions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal's got 450. 
Elijah's lying right here. If you go back two weeks ago, we know that uh, Obadiah has hidden 100 uh, prophets, but Elijah's protecting them. He doesn't want Ahab to find out about them because he's afraid Ahab will then go murder them all. And so he's like, it's just me. You're the, I'm the only one. Nothing to worry about. And there's only one of me. There's 450 of these guys for Baal, not to mention the 400 for Asherah. Like, you guys shouldn't be worried. This should be an easy, easy contest to see who's the real boss, who's the real god of the garden. Going on in the text, get two bulls, Elijah says, let Baal's prophets choose whichever one they want, and let them cut it up into pieces, put it on the wood, but don't set fire. I personally, and this is going to be a very difficult thing, and he's going to be doing this while they're, because to prepare a bull by yourself is not easy, because they're going to have to, it's very heavy. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, I'll call on, I'll call on Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is true God, true El. And the people said, it's a good plan, I like that. Going on. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. There was no response. No one answered. And they danced around on the altar, or danced around the altar they had made. Things are not going well. This is, by the way, in terms of a showdown or a duel, we're literally at high noon right now. So someone's got to draw and make this thing happen. At noon, Elijah began to mock them. Shout louder. Surely he's a god. Oh, maybe he's in deep thought. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's sleeping. Must be awakened. Now they take this and instead of like laughing at them, they're like, oh, he's right. We got to do it. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Um, Melkart, uh, because he was the god of the underworld um, and because his wife or lover was uh, the god of fertility, blood soaking into the ground would have been like a symbol of, of rebirth and, and renewal. And so they think if we just, if we water the earth with enough blood, then, uh, then, then things will, will turn out right. Midday passed, they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, I, I admit that I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of making fun of stuff. I really like it. I like to laugh, and I like to mock. Now, that can get me into a lot of trouble, because sometimes I can do things that are like a mocker, make fun of people who really don't deserve it. But for those of you who, I mean, well, think about this. Like there, there is a place for making fun. And it's actually, there's a, there's a bit of holiness to it. And if you don't believe me, then trust our friend Martin Luther. I got a quote from him. He says, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. Uh, he's not the only one. Uh, Thomas More says this. The devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. And that quote right there is at the beginning of C.S. Lewis's uh, Screw Tape Letters, where C.S. Lewis mocks uh, the demonic. The reason for this is that um, the devil is the personification of pride, as uh, Thomas More mentions right here. And, and pride is... It's at the root of our sin. And when you get to a certain level of pride, 
the one thing that you can't stand is for people to puncture that. And it's, it's interesting. Saul Alinsky, you may remember his 1971 book, uh, The Rule, Rules for Radicals, right? He, he, was, he wanted to, um, you know, overthrow capitalism and whatnot. And so he came up with all these rules for um, how, to, how to do that. And one of them, I think it's rule six, is something like ridicule your enemy. It makes them go crazy. They can't stand it. And not only that, but when you ridicule someone who's against you, it, it draws people to your side. It gives you, like, it, it creates a, a kind of, like, community feeling of, like, yeah, yeah, that guy's not everything he pretends to be. He's not the real deal. Uh, in fact, we, we, what Elijah's doing is not just making fun of the prophets of Baal. He's appealing to the people. He's like, look, these guys are full of it. Look at them dancing around, like, cutting themselves and bleeding everywhere. This is insane. And the people of Israel are like, that does seem insane. Uh, Nick was t- telling me a story about, uh, have you heard of this play, The Book of Mormon? Okay, I, I haven't seen it. I heard it's really, really raunchy, but uh, apparently it makes fun of uh, the Latter-day Saints, Church of Latter-day Saints. And uh, I guess it's pretty rough, but it, 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 Nick told me the story. I was sure he was lying because... One, he's a liar, and two, it was just too good to check. So he tells me, he's like, he's like, so um, when they came to L.A., when they, when they brought the, the Book of Mormon to L.A., the Church of uh, Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, they took out uh, a, uh, an ad on the playbill for the play, Book of Mormon. And it says, you know the book's always, always better. You've seen the play, now read the book. And there was a, a, like a, a, a telephone number to get a free copy of the Book of Mormon. I was like, no way that happened. It totally did. They absolutely did that. Apparently it was very successful. Like they actually, they actually, uh, distributed tons of books of Mormon. Um, now I, I have many, many issues with, uh, our Mormon friends, but I, I, I really, there's something about being able to laugh at yourself that shows that you're not above, that you're not, um, a tyrant, that you're not, that you're in fact, you're, you're, you're one of the normal people. Antichristic enemies in our culture can't stand that. They have no way to deal with being made fun of. And so it's incumbent on some of us to pierce their bubble. That could be dangerous in Elijah's case. I mean, he's lucky they didn't kill him. Uh, but it's something that, that is important. It's good. It rallies us together and it shows the, the fraud for what it is. So the next thing you know, she's sabotaging prideful antichrists starts with mockery. I, I say antichrist because in uh, the the book of First John, um, John tells us that many antichrists have gone into the world, and that's not like the big bad end of days. It's just somebody who's fundamentally opposed to the nature and character of Jesus. And when those people start lording, lording it over us, it, 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 one of the best ways to sabotage them is to show how silly and stupid they are. So that's another question. What do you laugh at? And who? Uh, why? One thing to note, always punch up. And by that I mean, notice that Elijah doesn't make fun of the people of Israel, right? He tells them, like, hey, make a decision here. But he doesn't make fun of them. He makes fun of the, their oppressors, the people who are above, who have power, who uh, have influence. Those are the ones who need to be pierced. Those are the prideful ones. The, the, the people are, are they're just, 
They're just confused. They don't know what to do. So when we do this, we, we, we need to make, for the, make sure that what, who we're targeting is somebody who needs to be brought down a notch. And I guarantee you, when they see that they are mocked, they will be furious. That's uh, the saying. Um, if you're taking flack, it means you're over the target. So if, you, if, you're, if people are upset with us because of the way that we're um, mocking those who would be God's enemies, things are going well. But going back to uh, the text, oh, I want us to notice something. We, we kind of, there's no response, no one answered. Uh, and again, it goes on, um, next slide, Marilyn. At noon, Elijah mocks, there's no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. You may have noticed that our secularist friends have been mocking us for some time now for exactly this thing. Have you noticed this? Um, example, whenever there's a mass shooting, which blows my mind that we, that's a thing in our culture now, but here we are. Um, you know, someone will tweet like prayers to the families and immediately that person gets savage. Like prayers, prayers, prayers don't do anything. Your invisible sky fairy should have done something to protect those kids. How, how can you, how can you do this? Your, your God is, is weak and, and, and doesn't do anything right. If he were so powerful, he would have stopped this. I mean, it, it's very, it's very interesting that that we get mocked um, in the, exactly the same way that Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal and Asherah. How do, how do we respond to that? I'll tell you. Um, so maybe fifteen years ago, ish, I was in the the middle of a dark night of the soul where I wasn't sure if God existed. I was in, uh, ironically, I was in seminary at the time. Um, and uh, I, I, I saw, I, I was reading, you know, all the, the new atheists, Dawkins, Hitchens, all those guys. And, um, and I was like, do I really believe this? At the same time, I was dealing with some un, out of control anxiety disorder. I mean, it was a bad time. And I remember I, I had a, she's now a friend and colleague, but at the time a professor who was a philosopher, a philosopher, and you know had made us read books about atheism and the critiques of of God and all these things as we were kind of wrestling with these things. And so one one day I, I asked her out to lunch because I was just falling apart. And I was like, Nancy, you're really smart. You get all the critiques. You get, you get all, and you can argue this way. But ultimately we know that the arguments in the end, they don't, it's, it's a matter of faith, right? Why do you believe? And I expected her to give me like some, you know, one of the various apologies and, you know, arguments or whatever. But instead she, she said this. She said, when my son was six months old, he became very ill. He had a fever of like, you know, 105, something really dangerous. Um, she took him to the hospital. They couldn't do anything. And the doctor came out and said, I'm really sorry, but it looks like your son is going to die. There's nothing we can do. 
And so I asked him if I could hold my baby one last time. I said, of course. And so she took the baby in her arms and she said, God, I've never asked you for anything. Please heal my son. The fever disappeared. Like at that moment, during that prayer. Immediately, the baby begins nursing. And she said, Tom, God was faithful in that moment. And I could, we can discuss all the different arguments for and against. But in the end, I saw God's faithfulness with my own eyes. And I've never been able to doubt again. The reason this story is even in the Bible is because it's giving us a testimony of God's faithfulness in the middle of a really dark time. Because a lot of times it does seem like God's silent, that God's not answering, that God's not doing anything. We cry out over and over and over and we get nothing. In those moments, it's, it's a story like this or a story like Nancy's. And I could go on and on with all the different things people have told me over the years, different ways where God showed up in these incredible moments. And those are the things that keep us going. Next thing on your note sheets, when God seems silent, we need testimonies of his faithfulness. We need them. In fact, if you look at the Psalms, right, the way that the Psalms, many of the Psalms are, for, are formatted is the psalmist has a complaint. God, why have you forsaken me? I need your help. And then God responds. And then what does the, 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 the psalmist do after God helps? He then goes and testifies, says, I will testify in the courts of your faithfulness. I will be a voice, a, a witness of what you've done. And that brings up a question. Do you have or know of any powerful testimonies of faithfulness? If not, ask around. You might need one someday for yourself or for somebody else. And I'm not dogging on apologetics. And if you have questions about why I believe in God and beyond just what Nancy, I'd love to talk to you. I'm, I'm all about talking about that stuff. But I, I have to admit there's something about that, that firsthand witnessing this happened. So um, I, I've skipped a little bit. So, so, so the, the prophets of Baal, they're bleeding all over the place, uh, screaming out, nothing's happening. And Elijah is finally like, he's like, it's getting late. So, he, uh, so he's like, okay, you guys do that. I, I'm going to set up my altar. So he sets up his altar. And then he's like, okay, and now just to make things, you know, to, up the, to up the ante here, I am, well, you guys, this, you get a whole bunch of water, dump it on the altar. So they do. They soak, they soak the cow. They soak the altar. He's like, do it again. They do it again. All right. Well, they soak the water. Uh, they soak the, the bowl again. He's like, not enough. A third time. Soak this bowl. The, the, there's so much water. They've built a trench around the altar. And the trench has filled up with, with water. This thing is soaked to the bone. No way it's possible for this thing to light on fire. And then this happens. 
At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Yahweh. Answer me so these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. There's an irony here. Um, Elijah, that name, El, God, Jah, Yahweh. Yahweh is God. That's what Elijah means. In this moment, he fulfills his purpose as a prophet. He goes and he makes true the claim that his parents gave him when they named him. And every, no one can deny it. No one can deny what's happened. God is Yahweh. Yahweh is God. Baal is a joke, a sham. Do you notice this at the very beginning? Um, next slide. The very beginning of the text. All the people are gathered around and Elijah goes up to him and says, how long will you dither between two positions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. I knew a guy uh, a long time ago. He, uh, he was an interesting dude. Um, loved going out to lunch. Uh, we, we alternated between uh, Red Robin and Ruby's. Um, and some other people came. Uh, Ruby's has betrayed its customer base horribly by changing the meat in their burgers. And so I call on all y'all to boycott that nonsense and never go there again. But Red Robin's not bad. There's one in Foothill. I, I love browsing the menu. I got a picture here of the Scorpion Burger. Yeah. <laughs> those, uh, those are fried jalapenos. They're like, they're beer battered jalapenos. Wow. Um, and I pretty much, well, now since I'm type 2 diabetic, I, you know, can't really eat these as much. But sometimes I'll go in there, get the gluten free, and then the side salad's kind of okay. Uh, but I almost always get the scorpion. Love that thing. But I also love looking at the menu because it's, it's glossy and it's got lots of beautiful pictures. And many of the burgers look delicious. Now, so what happens? I just, I'm going to get the scorpion. Okay, the, the waitress comes and she's like, what would you like? I'm like, the scorpion burger, gluten-free bun, uh, side salad. And she's like, uh, croutons okay? I'm like, I'll have one, thank you. And then she, what does she say right after that? C- can I take that from you? Right, the menu, right? Are you going to hold on to this thing? Are you going to keep looking at it? I'm like, no, no, I made my decision. Here you go. So this guy I know, every time the waitress came, he would say this. He'd say, no, I'd like to keep looking. I'm like, dude, what? He's like, just because you've ordered doesn't mean you can't keep looking at the menu. I was like, I mean, yes, technically that's true. But, I mean, what, do you, what, what, what would that do? It cause food envy, right? Like, you're sitting there, your scorpion burger's not as good as it could have been, and you think, oh, I should have gone for the bacon cheese. I mean, why would you do that to yourself? Uh, this guy was older than me. He was uh, married. His uh, wife never joined us. Um, and he had a habit of flirting with our waitress. 
every single time we would go out. And uh, he had this thing where he would... Um, he would do like handwriting analysis. He'd be like, I'll, you know, I'll tell you about your personality based on your hand. He'd like took a course. I don't know. And so, the, you know, pretty waitress, young. She's always like, oh, and he's like, eh, eh, eh. I'm like, dude, you're married. He's like, what? Just because you've ordered doesn't mean you can't keep looking at the menu. A few years later, he cheated. They're divorced. Elijah's looking at the people of Israel and he's like, why are you, why do you keep looking at the menu? Why do you keep flirting? It's time to choose. It's time to make a choice. Is it going to be Yahweh or is it going to be Baal? You're, you're sitting, you're sitting here in the middle. You're going back and forth like, ah, I like, I like a little bit of Baal, like a little bit of Yahweh. Why do I have to make a decision? Why do I have to choose? Well, because Yahweh demands your complete obedience. And so does Baal for that matter. Neither one of these gods is happy with you because you haven't made a choice. You keep looking at the menu. Do you think maybe we do the same thing? Yes, Yahweh is our God, the God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but I still like to have something over here. We've uh, we've been we've been interviewing uh, candidates for our youth pastor position, um, and I expect to have news about that very soon, um, but not just yet. Uh, however, one of the things, one of the questions we've been asking the candidates, uh, something to the effect of what would it look like to be all in for Jesus in your life? And the point of the question was to, to, to search and say, hey, is there something that you're kind of holding on to? You really still want a little bit of this over here. And, and, and yeah, absolutely, you love God, but you also want to keep looking at the menu. You want to flirt a little bit just to see what's out there. What would it look like to take your foot and, and go all in on one side? Make a choice. Decide. Choose. Are you going to be perfect? No, of course not. But what about that conviction on the inside that says, I am, I'm surrendering it all. I'm giving it all up. It's all, it's, it's Jesus or nothing. For, for the people of Israel at, at Mount Carmel, the, the garden of, of God, they're on the borderline with one foot in Phoenicia, one foot in Israel. And Elijah's saying, which way are you going to go? Make a choice. It's time to choose. It's the next thing, the last thing you're noting. It's time to choose. Stop flirting with other gods. Who are you flirting with? There's a question that we got to ask ourselves. Who are we flirting with? What is it? Is it, is it a substance? Is it a relationship? Is it money? Is it status? Is it being taken seriously? Is it pride? 
Every single one of those things is enticing, enticing. Like, yeah, I, I, I have control. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I just, just. Stop. It's time to choose. And what would that look like? What would it take to stop flirting for good? Because if we don't, God's patience only lasts so long. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your long-suffering patience with us. We thank you for your generosity and kindness and your grace. But God, we confess that sometimes we take advantage. Sometimes we just, our eyes keep wandering. We keep flirting with those things that we know are wrong. The things that take us away from you. God, settle in our hearts a decision to choose. Send your spirit and power to have us put all in on you. To go after Jesus 100%. And to leave the things of this world behind. God, maybe you settle in our hearts that it's time to choose and we need to choose you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.